Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Indie Football Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the sports editor of The Independent, Ben Burrows, chief football writer, Miguel Delaney, and features writer, Vatushan Ahantaraja. And this is the second part of our Why Football is Broken podcast. We released the first part of this pod on January the 22nd. It's called How Good is Liverpool Being Good? So make sure to check that out if you haven't already listened to it. In that show, we spoke a lot about the implications of Liverpool's current level of dominance, as well as the criticism of FIFA's plans to overhaul the Club World Cup. This week, we're going to expand on those discussions a little bit, and we're also going to talk about Miguel's uh, most recent piece, which you may have seen pop up once or ten times on Twitter. (laughs) It's cheerfully called How Football Became Broken Beyond Repair, and it's a comprehensive look at how unpredictability in modern football is in danger of dying a death. It's a very good piece of work. Miguel, before we get stuck into the piece itself, do you want to maybe talk about the kind of defining moments of the last few seasons that that made you lock yourself in your flat for 10 days and write 6,000 <laughs> words. What was the kind of genesis of, of the piece? It has really been a growing thing. Because um, I've, like, I've done, as, as someone said to me today, basically, like there's been, gonna, there's been a few pieces of the past while where I've touched on this. Um, I think the first time I really kind of did it properly was around 2014 after Madrid beat Atletico in the, in the Champions League. Because even though that was such a close game, it was a symbolic moment in that the inches were so tight and yet the consequences were so vast. It was Sergio Ramos' last-minute equaliser. But even still, then you've got... Would, would, would have meant everything to Atletico. It was obviously Madrid's first Champions League in, um, at that point, 12 years and La Decima. Uh, but it, it was as if like, that, that, those small margins reflected actually the gulf between the clubs and how the super clubs ultimately always just... It, it comes around to them. Because the previous year, of course, in a similar situation... A, a, game, a Champions League final that went down to the last minute and the bigger club, Bayern Munich, beating the smaller club in context, Borussia Dortmund. And so it's, it's since then, it's really kind of, and this whole idea of super clubs, um, it's, it's always been there in the back of my mind. I think it's ultimately, I think it's become the most important, it's basically what explains modern football. It's finances more than ever before. I mean, if you go back to the 80s, and I, I touched on this in the, of the piece, Liverpool are, all, are obviously dominating, dominating everything. But you can't put it back to finance in the same way because the numbers just aren't big enough. You still have a situation where Brighton have two of the best, played, best paid players in the country, mm. one of them being Michael Robinson, who's famous in Spain, where squads are ultimately too small to just have the same effect. Um, and it's really since the 80s and changes since the 80s that grows to we get to this point that's really happened since about 08, 09, and 10, which is the start of all these massive clubs getting doubles and trebles and record seasons, um, where the the main differential in football is uh, is finance. And, you know, people can go on about, oh, well, like, you know, it's 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 about the, the evolution of attacking football, it's about certain coaches, but ultimately they're all part of that system as well because the best coaches will gravitate towards the top of the game. I suppose if you had to boil all 6,000 words down into one sentence, it'd be something along the lines of the core unpredictability of football is being eroded by yeah. this 
this financial disparity. Is that fair? And what was the most damning thing you found when researching and writing this? I, I still think the one that stands out the most is the um, the Real Madrid Barcelona star. In that, just it, it, it's the amount because I think I think this is what's really striking. And actually, this was something else that prompted it. I, mean, I remember when football leaks came out last year and all that stuff about City. And then that, that very week, City plays at Hampton. Mm. And as, it was, as I think it was Ken Early to put it to on, his, on, on their part, second captains. Um, <laughs> but you have basically Manchester City, you know, spend 50 million on the best lawyers you can buy against Shane Long's at Hampton. <laughs> and it ends 6-1. And that kind of like... Um, it's it's the fact that these wins are becoming more and more normal. So, in in the from the the decade two thousand to two thousand nine, Real Madrid and Barca only win seventeen point eight percent of their games by three goals or more. So, what a, a heavy victory! Whereas in the last ten years, that's shot up to thirty eight percent or thirty eight point eight percent, and it's, it's absolutely massive. So, forty percent of their games almost are basically just non-events in terms of a, con- of a context. We want to get stuck into some of the reasons for why that is happening. If we can bring in, bring in you guys, uh, I suppose one true watershed moment that Miguel kind of gets stuck into in his pieces is, is obviously the formation of the Champions League and then the prize money from the Champions League entrenching the clubs that are already in it. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I think that's one of the key points of the piece is that it's this status quo and then if so, only so many people can reach this point and then they get the money back, then... They have then got an incredible advantage to go back in there and do it again. I think it's a stat in the piece that between 1995, the same amount of people um, got into the top four as in the entirety of the 2000s. So if you actually look at that, that's absolutely mm. insane. Um, and it's, that's an, that is a direct proof of what Miguel's been saying in that the unpredictability and competitiveness, basically, at the very top of the game is changing. And like Miguel says, it's... Almost all there are other factors, but it's almost all down to this financial um, imbalance. It's not a particularly sexy topic, but if we if we if we move on to financial fair play, is it fair to say that it's failed? Miguel wrote that the legislation came too late. Rather than creating a necessary competitive balance in European football, it reinforced the pre-existing levels. So is the problem here that by tying a club spending to their revenue, FFP is simply ring fenced the elite? Well, the, the issue here is something you see a lot in sport across the world where there is a problem to address and they address it too late and they end up addressing the wrong part of the problem. They're yeah. basically you know, trying to stop the dam from overflowing rather yeah. than thinking actually just go back to the source and let's sort it out earlier down the, you know, down the chain, as it were, or further up the chain. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you know, we've seen it with City, haven't we? The fact that, you know, I think you touched on it there about, um, about the lawyers that Ken Early mentioned that when you get to that level, you're going to be able to fight whatever people throw you away. You mm. don't have the clout to deal with these clubs anymore, and they didn't when they brought in this legislation. So, you know, as Miguel touched on in his piece, that they're just, I think they've got to a point where they're, they're too strong now that it doesn't matter what you bring in unless you actually put in something like a salary cap or mm. something that really actually hamstrings them, for want of a better word, then you're not re- we're not really going to see any progress. You know, you look at the title there and it's... Um, the game broken beyond repair. I think that is a problem. When when you read Miguel's piece, you don't come out with any solutions because, really, are there any? Well, well, we've got so. the piece tomorrow, and it, it's. Are we allowed to discuss that actually before well, we go? We'll, yeah, we'll talk about it in the second part. <laughs> okay. I mean, one thing I wanted to pick up on from what you just said, Vish. If even if City or PSG or whoever you like, even if they were banned from the Champions League for a season or for two seasons or whatever, would it change anything? 
I think that would be one of the worst things that they could do because as soon as they try and ostracise one of those big clubs, we're going to get further towards having some kind of Super League yeah. because as soon as you exclude them... This, this is the thing about UEFA's power, you know, that as soon as you push them, you know, push them a bit further back, as soon as you start trying to take it out on them, they're just going to lash back tenfold because they've got the clout to do that, whether that's financially or also just the fan base as well. People do want to see the best versus the best fundamentally. That's why you get... You know, for example, one of the things, uh, it's going a bit off track here, but one of the things I enjoyed about Miguel's piece is when he tweeted it, so many people were in agreement with him. And, you know, Miguel, your mentions at the best of time are a bin fire. <laughs> because you, because, you've got, because you, you deal with these kind of issues on a regular basis and you end up getting fans from City, from Liverpool, from Barcelona, from Real Madrid, just absolutely trying to take you down. And that fan base that has got so feral now that... You know they they couldn't they couldn't care less if they're not playing the Premier League if they're playing you know if they're in an eight team league playing the best in the world round around playing against Ronaldo's Messi's and whoever else then they're going to be pretty happy with that aren't they? But what's always amazing those situations is that uh, fans who probably consider themselves quite left wing economically left wing in normal life then become ultra capitalists when it, it belongs a it comes to their football club. Uh, and you get all sorts of stuff. Well, fuck, that's life. Some people are just bigger and wealthier than others. Deal with it. Uh, when you know we're, we're meant to be railing against this stuff and everything. And, and I suppose this is the point that I mean, even if, even if that is life, and, and tra- tragically that's where we are in kind of society. Sport is one area that doesn't need to be like it, it, it's organising principle doesn't inherently have to be uber capitalism. Look, I mean, and again, the great uh, the great irony that people turn to so often is the structure of American sports. Uh, that are you know because they recognise what competition or the that the what is so attractive about sport is is co- is competition. So they have loads of checks and regulations in to protect that. Now of course these are some of the wealthiest franchises in the world, but it's still it, it, the organising structure is still uh, equitable and democratic. Um, but and in <laughs> football is uh, is anything but. Have you been so, surprised by the reaction? Um, a little bit, actually. Uh, also, because you wonder, it's, it's, it is supposed to be such a dense topic with so many factors to it. You kind of, uh, you, you, you almost worry that at the start it won't take off, but thank, I suppose it did. Um, I suppose what you really want is that articles like this actually affect change. Um, but <laughs> that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bigger discussion. Um, but yeah, even like some Liverpool fans who would previously have criticised me when I did that piece in January, mm. and this is really just an extension of that piece, uh, some of them have been saying, I've got a few saying they, uh, oh, we can't actually disagree. It's interesting because I guess the, many of the critics will say, oh, what about Leicester City winning the Premier League or Sheffield United getting really close now or Man United falling away? And it's something that you point out in the piece is that this is still fundamentally a human game. So it's all about mistakes and it's a good line about the penalty spot being yeah. so far away to make it 70% chance of scoring. Well, the Leicester thing is very interesting as well because... It's it's quite a weird. I mean, it's both been a massive positive for the game, obviously, and actually a massive negative because it means anyone arguing for these structures can basically point to Leicester and go, "Look, this because this is still possible." Yeah. When the the whole reason Leicester was so magic was actually because of the amount of in, inherent inhibitions to it. Um, so that's that's not a good. So the fact a club like Leicester, we're still a big English club. The fact this was so almost impossible for them and that they so defied the odds, that's not something to be celebrated, even if their achievement is. And, and it's almost like Leicester is the great um, 
it, it's caused a bit of deception for people because then they, then they they're tricked into thinking this is possible when actually it's it's still a massive exception and it's also caused a reaction among the big clubs who as i opened the piece with then kind of firmly believe you know we don't want too many Leicesters. And, and I, was, I was going to bring this up in a, in a later piece, but it's worth mentioning the pod as well. Even in European football, apparently, there were, there were figures of kind of big clubs, suddenly when Leicester were in the Champions League and gone quite far in it, they got to the quarters. So some of like people from big clubs in Europe going, hang on, they're not part of the gang. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Vish, you uh, obviously write widely about other sports. Have you encountered similar structural problems uh, when reporting on other sports, or do you think this is becoming a, a kind of uniquely football problem? No, no, no. Wherever there's money, it's always going to be a problem, isn't it? Where people try and ring fence the game. Uh, in terms of, I suppose, the, the sport that sticks out to me um, that has been doing this for a while is cricket. Um, I think it was 2014 where India, Australia and England, having realised that they're the three teams that bring in the most money whenever they play each other, whenever they tour elsewhere, um, they came together and basically demanded a bigger slice of the pie from the ICC. And with that... They basically took money out of the pockets of um, of other full nations, other associate nations, and got to a stage where they were basically dictating the game. You only need to look at how many times England played Australia in ODIs and tests and T20s over the last three or four years. It used to be, you know, they play each other twice in three years, and now you know um, Australia coming for ODIs later this summer. And yeah, it's really an absurd situation they're into. Um, the difference is with cricket is because it's such a small ecosystem that when the complaints were made, they were heard and yeah. they were listened to. And 2017, they rolled back that a bit. It's still not parity. You know, those three still take a bigger slice of the pie, but it certainly is much better. But again, I suppose in cricket, because India are the superpower, you're always beholden to them. So, for example, if they decided to take their ball home and play amongst themselves, they could do that. Um 2017, the IPL um, broadcast rights at home went for 1.7 billion US dollars. And that's just to an Indian audience. So, you know, they could be happily playing amongst themselves. It just so happens that the players want to play international cricket. That's not to say in 20 years' time that they might not turn around and think, well, actually, why don't we just, we could have a more comfortable life. We just play each other at home and we can get them to come to us. Well, isn't that as well why the World Cup structure is as it is? Well, exactly that, yeah. So, you know, you've got, um, basically, in, in in the 2007 World Cup in the Caribbean, there was supposed to be, they'd orchestrated it this way, there was supposed to be a second stage game between India and Pakistan. Now, because of a series of upsets, which mm. should be celebrated in sport, it ended up being Ireland versus Bangladesh. And from that point on, they thought, right, this is not going to happen again. So they yeah, deliberately made it a 10-team yeah. World Cup. And it's even in the, so the World T20 that's happening later this year, T20 is... You know, probably the most meritocratic format cricket has in that it'd be a bit like playing one set of tennis. Anyone can win yeah, that one yeah. set, regardless of who's, you know, the standard. Um, but they've even tried to kind of take the romance out of that, where they've got a qualifying tournament before. So instead of having a 16 team, you know, four groups of four, you know, a bit of excitement, they're having 16, well, seven teams play off to be into that final final part of the tournament and yeah they've kind of stripped the magic away from it and and it's like, but as i said before because cricket's so small that kind of you know the people who are rallying against it are being heard and yeah. progress is being made bit by bit the issue with football is no matter how much noise but, you make, it's such a bigger ecosystem that, that point about the bangladesh ireland game i mean that's i think such an interesting thing in this and i, I was thinking about this from my own perspective and how and because a major issue in this is ultimately how seductive the biggest games are and how much... We're, I mean, over the next few weeks, we're going to be absolutely salivating over the Champions League uh, knockout stages. And even like football's equivalent of 
yeah, Ireland Bangladesh, probably the 2002 World Cup, where everyone's you know really excited about all these upsets, and then suddenly it gets to the semi-finals or the quarter-finals, and it's you know Korea against Turkey. When hang on, hang on a second, I want Brazil Argentina here, uh, and like there's always that double thing, and it's because basically we're so attracted to these biggest games, which these clubs know. And it's why there's this debate about the football calendar now. Ultimately, clubs like Liverpool, Real Madrid, they don't want to be playing domestic cup games against Shrewsbury or Valladolid. They want to play against the biggest matches because it's worth the most most money. Um, and when we're kind of party to that, because ultimately we're we willingly off pay for this service. And it's we've written about this as well. I think this is another step on the road to this piece. But it's that it's that dual thing about the Champions League. Now, on one side, it's so predictable. And then on the other side, because of that, and because of the way the competition is constructed, it then becomes this brilliantly unpredictable knockout stage that is probably the highest level of sport because of these inequalities. This is actually something that I was going to ask you coming in here because I saw a thread by, um, I think it's pronounced Omar Chowdhury of the oh, yeah, yeah. 21st Club, and he talked about how, you know, what the points, he agreed with the points you raised, and also said, kind of, as consumers, we need to look at ourselves because if we're continuing to. Continuing to buy this product, then we can't turn around and be like, oh, you know, for example, it's a bit like the iPhone, isn't it? We can't complain when the battery runs down when we just keep buying new ones. Yeah. Um, And I thought that was quite interesting because I don't necessarily agree with him, but I also wonder, you know, as you know, as people who work in the media, as people who consume football, is there anything we can actually do? How how much could we actually row back on what we've already done? But this is a circular problem as well, and I suppose one bench come on come in on us to want to make these decisions because ultimately, like even the media. As much as you try to do kind of worthy pieces and clubs lower down, you do it, and then there's no response because people aren't that interested. So, which, which may, would basically mean, as well, well, I have to. Part of the media is, as well as telling people what needs to be known, it's also about responding to what people are interested in and what's in the public interest. Well, yeah, precisely. It's, it's tricky. It's sort of like you want to shine the light on every story there is, but some stories are worth more than others, and that's sort of the the problem you're going to have in football now and it's why the Champions League like Miguel has written more than once that that's why it is the highest standard of football there is and it's why the World Cup now going to, from 32 to 40 teams is being diluted and it basically means this last 16 knockout of the Champions League is the best standard of yeah. sport there is basically um, it's, it's something we'll move on to I'm sure but it's it's that kind of thinking that makes you think well how bad would a European Super League actually be? Because we would still inevitably have to cover it on Saturday night in prime time or whatever it is. Um, But then should you? It's one of those sort of tricky balances. And a classic example of what we're talking about here, I suppose. Remember two and a half years ago, I was part of a group of journalists brought to an update on the investigation into historic sexual abuse uh, cases in football, which obviously one of the worthiest issues in football. And like Danny Taylor's coverage has been so groundbreaking. And also caused such a stir. And I did a piece on the update, and I can't remember the line now, but there was actually, they did give us new info, and that got something like 900 readers. <laughs> in, in 900 page views, something like that in total. Um, and like, which, you know, points to this kind of bind the media are in that we, ha- we have to cover what needs to be covered, and yet that still has to be balanced, because to do that, you actually have to do what makes you. Uh, Financially viable as well, which is covering. It's like what you said before the pod, Ben. I mean, we still cover the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, and we still covered Joshua's fight against Ruiz in 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 Riyadh. Extending this further, do we do we think that football fans have a responsibility then to to kind of be moral arbiters of the game when the government and the powers that be and and the sanctioning bodies aren't doing anything? Well, on that, and I think this is I think we've got a perspective on this having come from Ireland, because the Irish league has basically been ravaged by its proximity to Premier League and Ireland's actually probably been a bit of um, 
it foreshadowed a lot of this, I think, even 20 years in advance. Because in the 60s, basically, you know, clubs like Shamrock Rovers used to get crowds of at least 20,000. Match of the day started to be shown in Ireland in the late 60s, and that was that. Suddenly, um, local crowds started to plummet, and everyone was attracted to the glamour of the Premier League. Uh, and I suppose the ultimate thing is that if you actually care about football on an individual basis, do you have a personal responsibility to go to your local club? Because, it, I mean, it, it is your agency in this sense. Yeah. I mean, right, no one's expecting you to not watch top-level football. It's kind of impossible to ask. But maybe it start to at least invest in your local club as much as you do uh, the major clubs. We're going to come on to a lot of that in the second half of the pod. Um, just before we head to a break... Uh, we're going to answer a few questions because we had a lot of feedback to the first pod and also obviously to, to Miguel's piece. Um, the first question is one we've received loads of times. Um, some people say it in a really arty way, but it's, it's fairly valid. If super clubs are the problem, then why do you spend all your time talking about them? Which is kind of just what we've just covered there yeah. because everyone's interested in them. Because that's what gets the clicks. Yeah. Um, another point that's been raised numerous times, how can you possibly lump in Liverpool with Manchester City when their money has been generated through the success of the club rather than a mega-rich takeover. Because that is the entire point, that only that there's only a handful of clubs now that have a global fan base, and if you want to put it in Ferran Soriano business terms, have an active market that they can capitalise on. And everything in the game is loaded towards the clubs that can do that. It means they'll get exponentially richer. And now the only way you can actually compete with that, which is not to say this is a good thing, are mega-takeovers. That's a well-practiced answer. Um, and uh, <laughs> last question for now from somebody called The Hound. Uh, could a European Super League actually be good for English football? If you take away the richest clubs, then it would increase the competitiveness of domestic football. Let them have their fun. And somebody else called Hugh messaged in, the European Super, Le- Super League is a good way to go as long as there's no promotion or relegation. Um, it will be watched by those who want to see success, but with no soul. See, I get that argument. and um, We're at the unfortunate point where the game is so broken that this is almost desirable and yet one of, one of the beauties of football is that is it's kind is actually even though it's become a problem is its global structure and the idea that i mean theoretically in england you can go from the bottom to the very top whereas suddenly it'd be it would feel quite unnatural then to suddenly have one part of the game here cut off from the rest of it where there's, there's actually just no structural connection I sort of get it. So full disclosure, I'm a Blackburn Rovers fan. I, so I mm. sort of understand where you're coming from because t- part of me would be um, the worst possible thing that happens to Blackburn right now is to get promoted to the Premier League because um, it'd, be mm. it'd be a disaster. I have no interest in watching us lose 9-0 at Etihad. I've got no interest in mm. watching that happen. And the amount of money it would take for Blackburn to become competitive in the Premier League, you'd have to sell all the players that you become attached to in the Championship, get a new manager, basically do what Fulham did, but do it successfully and that's to go and finish that's to get into a league where you lose 80% of your games and scrape up on the last day Um, there's definitely an argument for staying in the championship and being the 8th best team in that league forever because you're going to win a lot of games and it's going to be very competitive football and you're going to get used to these players that become your heroes I can understand that obviously you need to have some kind of way of being like of getting better overall but I can sort of understand the idea that if you it's already the same as it is anyway, to a degree, in that Everton, who I mentioned the Everton problem in the piece, mm. they are never going to win the Premier League. So it's almost as if we're in a sort of mini Super League thing already, to a degree. Well, isn't it, I mean, that's another thing I was thinking about. So and I've, I've, this argument has obviously come up a lot in Scotland because of these long-term debates about whether Celtic and Rangers join the Premier League. But So if, 
and then suddenly like Hearts and, and Hibs can can challenge for the title again. So say if the top six clubs are locked off in the Super League or top five clubs, given Spurs weren't part of the last round of negotiations, if Everton and Newcastle or whoever are then winning titles, do those titles feel cheaper? Does it feel the same sort of thing? Uh, I know that that's kind of a, an emotional, instinctive reaction, but it is. I mean, ultimately, that's what football is about too. And surely it wouldn't take long for the kind of league to become divided in the way that it has now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just the thing because of the inherent structure of football. Oh, yeah. Well, if you're a very good player, why would you sign for anybody in the Premier League if you're never going to be in the European Super League? You'd much rather be on the bench for one of the Super League teams mm-hmm. than be a starter in the new Premier League, I think. Yeah. So it's... it's it's a, yeah. It's and it would be inevitable what would happen. It would it it would it would collapse without the big six. Imagine the grimness. I think even even the idea of career trajectories then, where you have like your your four or five years in in the Super League, and then the shame of having, of having to drop down. <laughs> like you know, you've not been picked for the draft by Real Madrid or 18th place. Christ no, 18th place Arsenal. <laughs> uh, okay, we're going to come on to a few more questions at the end of the show. I think it's probably time for a break. Uh, We'll see you in a bit. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome back to a very depressing episode of the Indie Football Podcast. Um, however, this is the section in which the gloom will lift because we're going to move on to talking about things we can do to save football in, in approximately 20 minutes. Uh, so, Miguel, your second piece on the topic is due to be published uh, tomorrow, which is Friday morning. Uh, one of the things you, you kind of nosed a piece on is uh, solidarity payments. Do you maybe want to explain what those are and, and could they be the answer to bridging the gap? Well, they should be. I mean, because ultimately, if anyone want, really wants to solve this problem in football, it is ultimately a, a Das Kapital-style revolution where the resources are redistributed around the game. And so... UEFA solidarity payments are at least a mechanism for that. And it's whereby the massive money generated by UEFA competition, that a certain percentage of it is circulated around clubs that don't participate so that the, the gaps are bridged. But the problem is that because of the heft of the big clubs and how much of the pie they want to keep, in the last few cycles, that percentage actually gone down. Now, the European League Association, they actually want it at 20%. 
presently it's 7.3%, having come down from 8.5%. And that's really so low a figure that it's basically just a sop. It's almost a meaningless figure because it's so low. Uh, and these discussions are ongoing now. And that, I mean, if every major competition distributed or redistributed about 20%, if the Premier League did it, it would have a huge effect. I think as, as Goldblatt, Goldblatt says in the piece, it would even have a massive effect on, say, the state of grassroots pitches in the country. Mm. Um, but there are various, both um, individual decisions and structural factors that, that, that prevent this. Uh, another thing you talk about is a, a more equitable TV rights distribution deal. Um, the Premier League's obviously benefited a lot from this. Um, if the other 14 teams are able to kind of retain the current deal or a deal similar to it, could we see that be replicated elsewhere? Yeah, Spain are trying to go that way. And it's obviously been very successful in the Premier League. Uh, although we've now got the, the first problem where, for, for the first time since the Premier League was founded, some of that has been changed through the international distribution, which has now been loaded in favour towards the finish high, those, those clubs to finish highest a bit more. And the ratio will now be 1 to 1.8 rather than 1 to 1.6 in terms of what you can total get. But And uh, um, I was talking to... Uh, Cortese actually directly told me this. He's on the record. He, he said um, one, of the, he, one of the clubs was actually in favour of this because he said the chairman of that club was able to go to any of his managers and say, well, no, you can't have more money because we've got these restrictions, which is absolutely like an insane point of view and kind of is one of them. If the game is forcing people to think like this, it's uh, it's just, I mean, it's, it's almost a mind, mind scrambling point of view from, from, from various perspectives. I suppose the wider problem with, uh, with these kind of measures is that, yeah, they might protect, you know, 16 teams or 14 teams in the rest of the top flight, but, but local teams, grassroots teams, lower league teams, they're going to continue to struggle. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's something that Miggs has touched on already. It's the sort of one of the things that comes back every time you write something like this is that, oh, what about the American system, basically, mm-hmm. where it's the NFL have a collective bargaining agreement where if uh, the, someone buys a Dallas Cowboys shirt, then the Green Bay Packers, a much smaller market, get a portion of the money. And that's sort of what the entire... 32-team NFL league is built on is that it's socialism by the 32 biggest capitalists in the country. That obviously doesn't work in a system where there's 92 league clubs and then infinite more below that. I think that's the, the what we're basically saying here in the how do we fix it. It's somehow redistributing the unbelievable wealth at one point and giving it to other people. It's But the sort of logistics of that are almost impossible given how many clubs and how many individuals and how many uh, like entities are affected by football in this country and in Europe. We've spoken on this podcast before about the erosion of uh, Rule 34 at the height of Thatcherism. Um, if you didn't listen or, or you don't know, uh, Rule 34 restricted the payment of dividends to owners, prevented the payment of directors, which, which all ended when, when Spurs were floated on the stock market. Um, we're now set for an, at least another five years of Tory rule. It's certain that the issues aren't going aren't to be addressed by government. Given that we're solely reliant on the Premier League and their Fit and Proper Persons Act, should we be worried now that we're at a point of no return and that you know, a great many of our football clubs are going to be sold and there's no way of getting them back? Oh, totally. And, I see, and the Premier League is in a bit, little bit of a bind here because it doesn't actually have that much power because it's really just almost a a collective of clubs rather than kind of a top-down structure. And I, I, from what you hear, this is why they so struggled to fill the CEO role for so long, because anyone come into the job realised, 
well, I'm kind of be, I'm kind of totally subject to the powers of the of the biggest clubs. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, and the other side of it, what, what's so um, crucial about that rule change in the '80s was that it actually at least acknowledged the social value of clubs in a way that nothing has since. And by allowing that to be sidestepped, uh, it meant that that role of clubs was sidestepped now. Um, and it's been almost a free-for-all, really. I suppose this comes back to what we are talking about, where like, do fans have a sort of moral responsibility? Because if you look at a club like Newcastle, fair enough, they've wanted to get rid of Mike Ashley for years and years and years. And yet to kind of welcome a, a potential takeover from like a, a dubious source, I suppose that's, that sums up where we are. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose it goes back to what we mentioned before about fans just being just more ingrained and more entrenched in in their club than before. You you don't really see the wood for the trees, do you? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, that's that's why I kind of think we're we're kind of in this mess for the long haul, maybe even permanently, because we've ended up creating this monster where we, we are getting fans wanting to take over from a regime like that. <laughs> Where it doesn't matter how it's actually mental, but yeah. it doesn't matter how whether you outline all the human atrocities and this, that, and the other, and just how they generally run their state. But you might sign Neymar. Exactly, yeah. Or you might even be linked with Neymar, and that and that's enough for some people. It, what a great example of how you know, I mean, you don't really need to go far to see how football should be. You just need to jump into the championship and see. I suppose just talk to fans in the championship, and you see that they have that quintessential thing of, I suppose gallows humour of appreciating the fact that you're going to you know the rough is going to come with the smooth and mm. if you're lucky you might break out of that and, and enjoy yourself and enjoy a day out maybe hopefully get into a playoff and, and whatever and things like that but you saw how quickly it t- took how quickly it took City fans to become to go from God why does all this shit happen to us to well we deserve everything you know we deserve all these trophies you know we've got the best manager in the world we've got the best team in the world and I'll defend that to the hill it's, it happens so quickly. You give people a taste of success and even sustain the success over five years and suddenly their whole mindset completely changes. And, and with that, obviously, your fan base widens because you become more attractive to you know, fans overseas and you see, for example, even anecdotally, you see more and more Man City shirts around. You've always seen Liverpool shirts around. But City was, for me, I suppose, the breakout. And maybe you can throw Chelsea in there as well as a team who are now you know, ubiquitous around football fans. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, I've totally lost the thread of my point here because I, just, <laughs> I honestly just can't see how how you can row back. And you know, the Newcastle fans are a great example that a team that pride themselves in being you know a, a one club city who yeah. really appreciate what it is to be a club from the northeast are happy to just throw that away for a, a, just even a, a hint of a sniff of success. Sticking with your point about the championship and maybe looking a little lower is the only realistic answer at this point to kind of ignore all of the the institutions and and the people with all the money and to go local and and to invest time and money in lower leagues but I suppose it's it's how yeah I mean yes I suppose the answer is yes but then how do you go about doing that I think it's really interesting when you see this kind of non-league revolution that's happened Mm. in this country but actually if you look at it a bit closely you know it's Dulwich Hamlet it's you know Peckham it's you know Clacton it doesn't really happen across the country, does it? Mm. It just happens in affluent areas where people have a bit of spare money. Also, there's a bit of social cachet with Dulwich Hamlet as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, it, you know, it doesn't happen... It's not going to happen across the board because there are a lot of places in the country, you know, you see with HS2, don't you, about this mm. issue of connecting different parts of the country. It's just... I don't think it's... Unless it's actually doing it in a sustained way where you end up having to rebuild communities around this club, because the reason a lot of the clubs are falling by the wayside is because 
they've just been drained socioeconomically around them mm. and that's and they're you know it's the next step of doing that all the, all the infrastructure falls away and you get situations like Barry and whatnot so you know yes that's a great idea but I just don't see how you'd ever actually execute it properly without you know as you mentioned before change from the government What's the kind of bottom line of your uh, of your piece on Friday, Miguel? What's the kind of conclusion? That you were, <laughs> how, how do you say football? There is no change, but I, doesn't, I think I don't think there is saving it. And I think the conclusion we have basically is that the only well, if you don't just want a situation where ten to twelve clubs are winning all these games or winning not eighty to ninety percent of trophies and matches perpetually, then the only change to that is actually a super league, mm. uh, because I with the current structure. I can't see how, with it, how it can be changed. I, I, I don't think there's the will there because you you keep at, at, at every at every turn you just find an obstacle. If you want redistribution, then suddenly the big clubs are flexing their muscles. So it, it will basically take a total realignment of the attitudes of the big clubs. But that's just not going to happen when you know Liverpool are owned by venture capitalists, Manchester City are owned by um, a sports washing exercise. So I mean, it's, it, they haven't taken over these clubs for the the welfare of the game. Mm. Um, so so it, it, it's why they're going to keep keep pushing in that regard. Then if you look at something like as we're talking about, if you were to try and bring in some sort of American system, well that's impossible because football is it's it's hugely global with so many different locations within it. There's no centralized league, and, and UEFA and FIFA are only ever kind of facilitators or overall umbrellas rather than, rather than truly deeply legislative, legislative bodies in that way. And, and any league that, that kind of brings in any sort of centralised system, they're not going to go for it because it immediately puts their their league at a disadvantage to other leagues. Although the Sweden thing is interesting. I do, I do reference this in the piece where they've basically gone for a 50 plus one model uh, and it's been at the cost of commercial investment in the Swedish league but what it has done is create one of the most kind of uh, vibrant leagues in Europe. Um, where, and it's in a really healthy state in terms of what the actual the competitiveness and what the game looks like. But it's obviously maybe it doesn't have the gloss or the money of uh, neighbouring leagues, leagues like Denmark. I think it's quite interesting. Something we've not actually mentioned in the first piece that Miguel did, something really interesting from David Goldblatt, where he says it's almost like, what what is this all for? Yeah. Like, if it's only 10, 10 clubs can win something, it's just a bunch, it's just one business trying to outdo another business at a certain point it's like what is the point of all this perhaps the end game is these companies who aren't actually invested in the clubs themselves just in what it means to be part of it then maybe they lose interest and they go for something else and then that's where when we sort of get our football back kind of thing perhaps whether that's sort of a fanciful pie in the sky idea i don't know but if it's if they could so easily pick up a like like we said Newcastle, then they could quite as easily drop them again in the same way. Yeah, and maybe that's where the sort of the future comes when it's sort of we out out of this bubble again and we sort of go back to where we were before. I'm not sure if that's a, a freaking entirely fanciful idea or not. Yeah, well, I mean, the Glazers are a classic example there. I mean, what what they are in Manchester United to make money, and everything about the ownership of the club has been geared towards that. So they're not suddenly going to take. I mean, wh- whatever about some of the decisions uh, like TV rights, they're not going to, uh, you know, deny, suddenly want to give back chunks of what United are currently, their potential earnings um, for, for the good of the game because that's not for the good of the Glazers, which, what they're ultimately in this for. 
Just before we uh, wrap up, there's a couple more questions I think it would be quite good to talk about uh, that, that jumped out. Uh, one from yesterday that we've kind of discussed. Um, is the financial disparity driven by supporters instead of clubs? We buy the uh, TV subscriptions, we pay the ticket prices, we read the gossip. Uh, I suppose this is kind of like it's a societal argument as well, mm -hmm. isn't it? Which I think is maybe, it's a bit unfair to put it on people because you know, individual people are just kind of they're interested and want to watch a bit of football. Yeah. Um, and like they're being as fleeced as anyone else. They've been victims of capitalism in the sense that if you look at, if what, 10, 15 years ago, you could have watched one, one or two subscriptions, you could have watched all the European major leagues. Now, you've got to get, what, four or five different ones. If you want to watch all the Premier League, you've got BT, Sky, then you've got Premier Sports. Um, so I, I think while it's fair to ask for more agency from people, it's unfair to kind of put the problem down to them because it's... I don't know, this, is, this, is, this is... Have you ever seen that uh, documentary, the, uh, the Corporation? I think it was on Netflix, right? I don't think it's anymore. Where it, where it points out the problem with global capitalism in this way, even if people are... Even if there are obviously individual forces taking decisions that lead to these inequalities, just it's the way the system works in that it's aggressive in itself and just is it's almost um, almost like an AI just push, pushing everything um, and that influences the, the, the decisions of individual people. One more that I think you've already been tweeting about um, and we were discussing before the show. Are Tottenham a super club and would Spurs beating Liverpool last year not have been the Champions League equivalent of Leicester winning in the league? Um, see, I, I actually... This is one thing I kind of slightly regret from the piece. Not regret, but I've been thinking about it more. High, high on up in it, we've got a list of the super clubs, mm. which, you, which you've taken from the Deloitte Super League, and I think, or the Deloitte Football Money League. And I think that was actually the wrong way to go about it, because the only reason that Spurs have jumped into that top 10 is because of that one freak season. Of the well, not freak, but that one outlier of a season in the Champions League where they suddenly got an extra 100 million. Mm. So it, that's not income they can regularly rely on um, and if you look at their commercial income it's way lower than even some of the clubs that they've jumped ahead of like Chelsea and Arsenal um, so I think the Spurs are an interesting case in that way I think, I think they're just on the brink of Super League status or Super Club status um, and I mean there will be the argument now well if Spurs can do it anyone can do it but I don't think that's the case I mean it's come from basically Daniel Levy's specific mindset and, you know, a painstaking process in which every inch has been fought for. But they have so many advantages. I mean, the 90s, if you, if you look at the opening of the Premier League, they were still, they're one of England's four wealthiest clubs. That stayed the case right until the end of the 90s. And secondly, they're based in London, um, which is, and with a huge fan base already. And that's just such a massive advantage. And I suppose Spurs floating on the stock market was, was one of these huge events that kind of set a lot of this Yeah, totally, yeah. Um, okay, thank you. Uh, that's all we've got time for this week. If you are one of the three people who has not read Miguel's piece, make sure you do. Uh, we're going to link to it in the description. His follow-up piece will be published on Friday, and there will be a further piece published at the start of next week, exclusive to subscribers on Independent Premium. To read that and plenty more, take advantage of our current offer. You can sign up for just £3 for the first three months. Visit independent.co.uk forward slash subscribe for more info. If you're a new listener, please subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, Acast or wherever. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye.